Welcome back. Hope everybody had a good week. So, as you're checking in at the table, you should have had chapter 8 done this week in your study to show yourself approved Bible interpretation book along with chapter 8 of the exam. We're going to be going over that together in class today. And then also, you should have got caught up with what Deb Badir taught when she was here for the previous two weeks on the tactics for defending the Christian faith. And we'll talk a little bit about that today if we have time. And I've sent out the video and the slides, the PDF for that presentation, both of those presentations. So if you missed one or both of those, you should have caught up on that, as the email said. And then you also need to select a Bible passage for your final project in the class. And we're going to be getting rolling on that. Uh, we've only got six weeks left of class after today. Our final class day is going to be May 12th. So you can put down May 12th on your calendar as the last apologetics class here for our second semester. We'll end the year on May 12th. For the upcoming week, not surprisingly, you're going to be reading chapter 9 in the hermeneutics book, Bible Interpretation. And doing the quiz on chapter 9. If we keep going the chapter a week, we'll be done in plenty of time. And then that will also give us some time at the end of the semester for presenting your Bible study. And I haven't quite figured out exactly how we're going to get everybody to present their Bible study in the time that we have. Most likely it will be smaller groups. And I might end up having you guys grade uh, each other in the small group because I, I won't be there to to catch the whole Bible interpretation or the Bible study for each small group as we've got a lot of people to go through in a short amount of time. And you should aim for a 15 to 20 minute Bible study lesson. That'll be a good start for you. Now, a 15 to 20 minute Bible study lesson is not like a 15 to 20 minute sermon. Uh, it's a little different situation when you're uh, in a, a small group setting. You can get some interaction going. You can talk with the people that you're teaching, and so it's not the same as being on stage and giving a speech. And you'll have all of your notes with you. Now you'll notice that I brought with me today the books that I've been talking about, the resources over here, both at the table you checked in and the second table, and I'm going to have these set up on these tables for the next month, so that if you come to class early, the doors will be open at 7.30 on Fridays, so you can come to class early and use some of these resources, or you can stay afterwards. But if you stay afterwards, you have to be quiet, because uh, I'll have to set up another table so that the other class that comes in and normally uses that table, we're not disturbing them. Maybe I'll, I'll move the table over here or something. And so I brought a few extra resources that I haven't yet introduced to you, so let me go ahead and do that. Uh, this one by Scroggy, what a great last name, uh, is called The Unfolding Drama of Redemption. And so if you select, say, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 10 as your passage, well, you can open this up. It's like a big uh, Bible in the sense that it, it comes from, it starts with Genesis and goes through Revelation, and it covers basically the unfolding drama of redemption, the progressive revelation from beginning to end. And so then you would find the section that has to do with the Gospel of John. Here's Mark. And then you could read 
what he has uh, about that part in the story of the Bible. Um, so I'm going to leave that over there also so you can make use of that resource if you like. And then I brought with me an introduction to the New Testament. So if you select a New Testament passage, you could look up the book of the Bible that you selected, once again, say the Gospel of John. And then he has a whole chapter on the Gospel of John that will introduce you to the book. Basically what this does is what a study Bible does at the beginning of each book, except this is much more in-depth, much more thorough. So if you want to go deep on your Bible introduction, uh, then I brought that resource along. But most of you will probably just want to use the study Bibles, either that you have or that I've made available on the resource tables. So, just wanted to let you know some of those things that are going to be there. Another book that I brought with me is uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. So, a Systematic Theology book doesn't go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Instead, what it does is it uh, takes what is in the Bible topically. So if you pick a passage from the Gospel of John about the deity of Jesus Christ, well then you could look up in a systematic theology like this one. This, I brought this one because it's very readable and I think it would be an excellent resource for you to consider if you were building your own resource library or your parents. It's a good one to recommend to have on the shelf. And so you would find the, the chapter, and you go to the table of contents obviously, find the chapter on the deity of Christ. And then you could read what he has on that subject. And so you pick out the theology that is in your passage, and then you can find it in a systematic theology. If there's several, you can look up several. So that if you're wondering, I'm going to be teaching this passage on the deity of Christ, and I don't really understand the deity of Christ that well. Well, instead of reading the whole Bible to yourself seven times to try to get a better understanding of the deity of Christ, you read his chapter, and he'll point you out all the verses, and then you can be double-checking and say, okay, yeah, this is how I want to say this, or this is how the right way to think about that. So it can be very useful to consult a systematic theology if you're dealing with a passage that has some difficult theology in it. Another resource that I brought is the four volumes. The three volumes are over there. I'm holding the fourth volume in my hand. It is Vincent's Word Studies in the New Testament. And so what's nice about Vincent's Word Studies in the New Testament is, is that you don't have to look up the words. He's got them arranged according to the passage. And so again, this is a New Testament resource. If you do so want some Old Testament Word Study resources, you can talk with me about that. I didn't bring those with me. Um, but you'd look up, uh, for example, here, the first epistle to Timothy, and then on verse 17, he's got one, two, three, four paragraphs, uh, each one dealing with some of the, the key words in that verse. And so this, this word study will help you with some of the important words and understanding why the English translation uses the word that it does. So I recommend you check out Vincent's word studies on your passage. And then a couple other things here. This, this book is called Hard Sayings of the Bible, and it's got several different authors who have contributed to it. And so if you are dealing with a passage that is difficult to interpret and there's different views that different people have on it, then you can look up in Hard Sayings of the Bible to see whether they have an article on it. Um, for example, I've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and in Mark chapter 13, verse 30, Jesus says, This generation will not pass away until all these things are accomplished. 
And so the question is, well, what does he mean by this generation? Is he talking about his own generation? Is he talking about a future generation? And so they had a helpful article, uh, several pages, just on that question. And so it's not going to have every passage, of course, in the, in the Bible. Uh, not, can't write several pages, pages on every passage. But the ones that are particularly difficult, this is a great resource to look into. And then finally, I got here a one-volume commentary, Matthew Henry's commentary on the whole Bible. Can you imagine uh, studying and, and teaching the whole Bible? Well, Matthew Henry did that and uh, put together Matthew Henry's commentary on the whole Bible. Now, this is uh, one volume, but I also brought with me over there on the table the Zundervan uh, uh, commentary on the whole Bible in 12 volumes. I don't have all 12 volumes, but I've got like eight of them over there. And so you can look up your passage in that commentary and... It's, it's brief, it's written for people who don't know uh, Greek and Hebrew, and so I thought that would be a great resource to make available to you so that you can consult the commentaries. And I'll be walking you through this step by step. You don't have to, to figure it all out on your own. The first thing you do is you select your passage. And the second thing you do is you read your passage in many different translations, and you start writing down observations and questions. And that's going to be your assignment this week, is you're going to... Read your passage over and over and over and over and over and over, and you're going to be writing down observations. And your observations need to be significant observations. They can't be like, well, every sentence ends with a period. Great, thanks. Um, they use capital letters at the beginning of each sentence. That's not an observation that helps us understand the meaning of the passage. So make sure that you're not just saying, well, the letter B occurs seven times in this verse. It's not helpful. Uh, you're going to be looking for observations about the meaning, the content, what's being communicated by the author. And I will uh, give you some examples of what an observation should look like when I send out your email assignment this week. So 20 observations, 5 questions, and so you have to have your passage. That's going to be our start. You don't start with the commentaries, you don't start with the word studies, you start with observations and questions. So I'm going to walk you through it step by step. Don't be overwhelmed by the whole process. And we've got six weeks to get through the whole process. All right. So that's the assignment for next week. I told you about the last day of class. What's the last day of class? May 12th. May 12th. Yeah. The other assignment you're going to have this week is I'm going to send out videos of your second round of speeches. And I'll try to let you know which video you're in and kind of give you some idea of a timestamp to look for. Um, and I want you to watch yourself on the video and I want you to grade yourself. So I'm going to pass around the evaluation forms and you take one, whether yours was informative, illustrative, or persuasive, and take the appropriate form and pass those around. And then the email will have a link to the videos so that you'll be able to grade yourself. I was going to give you grades back this week, but I thought, no, I want you to grade yourself before you see my grade. So that's why we're, we're doing this. It's very good to watch yourself on video. It's something I had to do when I was in seminary and videotape our, our little sermonettes. And you have to see what you look like, what you sound like. And of course, what you look like and sound like is very different from what you look like and sound like in your head. Uh, your voice changes in your head than it does what's coming out of your mouth. So if you've ever listened to yourself uh, on recording, you recognize it. it sounds different than the way that I sound to myself. But you get used to it. I listen to myself every week. 
because I edit the sermon and put it up online. And so it's good, good to have that available. Be able to step outside yourself and see yourself third person. All right. Let's go ahead and then open up our hermeneutics books. Chapter 8 is what I had you read this week. We are a few weeks behind in our lecture on the uh, Bible study, Bible interpretation book. So we're just going to start at chapter 8, and then we'll work our way backwards and see how we can cover everything in this book. But since we just read chapter 8, I thought it would be good to start there this morning. So go ahead and open that up, open up your quizzes. Principle number 17 in our Bible interpretation book is recognize the fact of progressive revelation. Now, the word progressive has kind of taken on some negative connotations in our society, our world, so I don't want you to think along those lines. When we say progressive revelation, we're not talking about anything leftist. Uh, and we're also not talking about an evolutionary idea of religion. There's a, a big difference between what we Bible believers mean when we talk about progressive revelation versus what the liberal theologians, the non-Bible-believing uh, Christians mean when they talk about progressive revelation or the evolution of religion. So, if you go to the university and you take a class on religion, the basic outlook, the basic viewpoint is going to be that religion starts very primitive and mankind is unevolved, but that as we evolve, we start to develop more sophisticated ideas about religion and spirituality and ethics, and that now we're much more advanced than those early proto-humans or whatever. Well, that's not a biblical view. The biblical view is that people are still pretty much the same as we always have been, that we were created in the image and likeness of God with a, a full intellectual capacity, a full moral capacity, a full spiritual capacity. So, so we shouldn't look back on Moses or even go back to Adam and think that somehow these guys were, were unevolved. Now our society has progressed. Our society has evolved. We have technology and knowledge and things that they don't have. But when you look at the individual capabilities, they were just as capable, if not more capable, than what we are. We just have a greater accumulation of knowledge. And that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about progressive revelation. We're talking about a greater accumulation of knowledge that God has revealed in Holy Scripture. So, you start off in the beginning of the Bible, and you've got Adam and Eve in innocence, walking and talking with God in the garden. But because of sin, they are separated from God and cast out of the garden. And we come to the time of the flood, and the worship and knowledge of God seems to be pretty rare in the world. And that man has pretty much lost the knowledge of God. And so, when God starts over, and he starts to reveal and teach himself to the people of Israel... He's got to lay out some, some basic principles. There's only one God. Because all the nations have the idea that there's many gods. Because Satan and his demons were pretending to be gods. And fooling everyone into thinking that there was all these gods that needed to be worshipped. And so the idea of one God was a revolutionary concept in that ancient world. And now we live in a time where most people accept the fact that there is one God. And we don't have a lot of polytheists in our society and in our, in our culture. 
And that is, in one sense, progress. Uh, however, when we think about progressive revelation, recognize that those basic principles of God's character, His holiness, His righteousness, His unity, His singleness, those were foundational to build up to the truths that God wanted to reveal at a later time. And so, as knowledge increased, as God had laid the foundation for the foundation work for certain ideas, then he was building upon that as the revelation of the Bible progressed. So that's what we mean by progressive revelation. We're not talking about evolution of religion. And also an important thing to keep in mind with progressive revelation, there was nothing wrong with the initial revelation. It's not like that, you know, God communicated and we couldn't handle the truth and so he had to accommodate the truth to our primitive understanding and so there's things in the Old Testament that aren't quite right but that God was moving us in the right direction. A lot of people look at the Bible that way. They say, well, when God was talking to the Israelites, you know, about slavery, uh, you know, he didn't outlaw slavery right away because that was just a part of the culture and he was accommodating himself to the culture. Uh, but now, you know, we've evolved and we know that, that slavery is always wrong. And so, with a concept like that, you've got to recognize that that is part of our ethical culture. That doesn't mean that is true. Now, hey, I'm challenging you on the subject of slavery, right? When we think of slavery, we think of Europeans and others enslaving Africans and bringing them over to the United States as a... Uh, a racial form of slavery. But that's not the only kind of slavery there is in the world, and we have to recognize slavery still exists in the world today. How about all the criminals who are at the penitentiary? Do they have their freedom? No, they don't have their freedom. They are in bonds, they are in chains, they are in cells, they don't have freedom. And so there are certain things that can be done that cause us to lose our freedom. Crimes are one of those things. Uh, economic failure is also another one of those things. Someone who is economically stable and sound has more freedom than somebody who is indebted. You've heard of debtor's prison. And debtor's prison is where people would go to work off and pay off their debts that they weren't able to pay. Well, we don't have debtor's prisons anymore, and people think that's progress. But is it just for someone to be able to default on their debts and not have to pay those debts? Is that just and is that fair to the person that they owe the money to? So you have to stop and think, well, just because our society says something is always wrong or always evil, and we think of it in a certain way, sometimes you have to ask questions and push back and, and examine. And, and what you'll find when you do have an open mind and you examine and you think about these things is that everything that the Bible presents is, is right. Everything that the Bible presents is true. Even when it is counterculture to our ethical standards as Americans in the 21st century. So that's why I think it's important for us to go back and read the Old Covenant and not say, well, here's some primitive understanding of uh, economics or uh, justice or criminal punishment, but instead go back and recognize, you know, there's, there's wisdom here. There's, this is God's word. When he had the freedom to set up a nation according to his law and his ways, this is what God did. And God doesn't accommodate himself to a sinful world. Uh, God reveals himself for who he is. And his ethical standards are a reflection of his character and his nature. So you don't want to read the Bible like an evolutionist does. 
you want to read the Bible as an inerrantist does. That the Bible is God's revelation and the ethical principles in the Bible are true. So doing a study on slavery in the Bible, I, I recommend it. It's a very fascinating study. Find out, well, how did, did God regulate slavery? What was uh, the ways that someone would uh, become a slave? And is that right? And what is the sense of freedom that we have? And how do we know whether or not we have uh, the right to freedom and these things? So it's very fascinating to do a study like that, challenging you. So anyway, I want you to make clear in your mind, progressive revelation doesn't mean the former revelation was in error or was false in any way. It wasn't an accommodation to an imperfect culture, but it is the, the revelation of God's own character and nature. The law in the Old Testament is a perfect revelation of the character and nature of God. It's important to keep that perspective. Then secondly, when he was talking about the, uh, the issue of progressive revelation, he got into the subject of dispensationalism versus covenantalism. Now, these might be terms that you're not as familiar with, and I want to spend a little bit of time helping you think through what was in the chapter. The chapter is written from a dispensationalist point of view. And I grew up in a church that had a dispensationalist point of view, and I would still identify myself as a dispensationalist. However, let me say this. Uh, Dispensationalism has some of the same problems that all systems of theology have, is that sometimes the system takes over and the system starts to kind of uh, inbreed a little bit with its own ideas. And instead of just sticking to the scriptural text, it starts to develop uh, based upon its own traditions. Okay. And I think that is kind of what happened with dispensationalism. The same thing that happened with covenant theology. Covenant theology came out of the Reformation, and I love the Reformation, and I love the covenant theologians of the Reformation. But in the generations following the Reformers, you had some of this systematiz systematization of their theology. And they started you know, reading the Reformers instead of reading the Bible. And they started developing a, a system of reading the Bible, a system of theology and interpreting and understanding the Bible that was, was more based upon logic and their system than really based upon exegesis of the actual text. And so we always have to guard that we don't become too systematic in our thinking and we don't allow our logic and our understanding to, to develop these, these uh, overarching interpretations of Scripture. And I think dispensational and covenantalism are both overarching ways of reading Scripture. They both have some good things, they both have some bad things, by and large, I'm a dispensationalist, but I'm not really that wild about the term dispensationalism because when you look at the Bible structure for itself, well, the Bible talks about covenants. It starts in the book of Genesis with God's covenant with Noah and God's covenant with Abraham. Uh, oh, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, God's covenant with Abraham. And then God's covenant with Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai, and God's covenant with David, and then the new covenant in Christ. And so when I think you're, when you're looking at the, the overarching structure and theme of the Bible, I like the word covenant. However, I don't like covenantalism because the, the, the covenant theology hasn't stuck with the biblical covenants, but instead they've created covenants that they see, but that the Bible doesn't actually talk about. Uh, for example, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. So if you've got your book there with you, 
in chapter 8. Perhaps you're in a church that's covenant in their theology, and you've been taught about the covenant of uh, works and the covenant of grace, or as it's here on page 89, the covenant of uh, works there starts and goes into covenant with the law, and then the covenant of redemption has the covenant of grace arched underneath it. Kind of a, a chart of covenant theology as a system. But if you read through your Bible, you won't find any verse that says, here's my covenant of works. You won't find any verse that says, well, here's my covenant of redemption. Uh, those are, are non-biblical terms. Now, it's okay to have a non-biblical term to describe a biblical idea, but you can't even find a passage that really presents this as the systematic idea. Now, covenant theologians will argue with me on that. They'll say, no, it's right here, it's right here. And I'll say, well, yeah, I mean, there's some of your idea in there, but some of your idea doesn't justify your whole system. Um, and so we have to be careful that we don't take biblical truths and develop them into a system of thought that is not supported by the scriptures themselves. This is where systematization kind of becomes a problem. So, the, uh, what is wrong with the covenant of works versus a covenant of grace or a covenant of redemption? Well, it gets us away from a proper understanding of Israel and the church, that there's a distinction between Israel and the church. And this is what dispensationalists really saw as the problem with the covenant theology, and what they went undertook to, to fix was to redraw the distinction between God's work with the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and God's work with the church in the New Covenant, in this age, this dispensation of the church. And I think that is why I call myself a dispensationalist, is because I really see that when God made a covenant with Israel at Sinai, uh, that was a specific people in a specific place with a specific contract, covenant means contract, with God that teaches us about God, but we're not part of that. We're not a part of that covenant, but we are a part of the new covenant. And you learn about the new covenant even in the Old Testament prophets, and the, the new covenant doesn't really begin until the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He inaugurated the new covenant in his blood. And so if we think according to the biblical covenants and we keep a proper distinction between the covenant that God made with Israel and what now God has a covenant not only with Israel but with all believers through faith in Christ, then that will help you to be able to properly interpret the Old Testament law and our relationship to it, the promises of God to Israel that do not carry over to our time uh, and will help you to set things in their proper context. So, a good example of this in the text is when the author points out the differences between the commission of Christ to his disciples in Matthew 10 and the commission of Christ to his disciples in Matthew 28. So, in, that, in the same book, you've got a change in dispensations. You've got a, a change in the covenant through which God is relating to his people. In Matthew chapter 10, this is before Christ has died and inaugurated the new covenant. And so when Christ sends people out to preach, he tells them, go only to the lost sheep of the children of Israel. Now, after 
he dies and is resurrected, he gives them a new commission. He says, now go into all the nations and make disciples of all the nations. Well, that's a big change. And it's a big change because now it's a new dispensation, you know, not really a biblical word either. Uh, really, the right way to think about it is, is that we, we switched from being under the old covenant. Those things are passing away, as the New Testament says. And now we're relating to God through the new covenant, through faith in Christ. And the new covenant is for all nations, whereas the old covenant was just for the people of Israel. Not that we can't learn from what God did with the people of Israel. It's written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It was written to the Israelites. And so that's a, a key for understanding the fact of progressive revelation, understanding that God progresses and that the old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant. Understanding the relationship between those covenants is really what is debated and discussed among dispensationalists and covenant theologians. So hopefully that has helped you to understand a little bit about that. You need to read several books and uh, really have a great understanding of biblical theology to, to properly discuss and debate these issues. I'm just trying to give you an introduction. You may have grown up in a dispensational church. You may have grown up in a covenant church. Um, doesn't mean that we're not friends with each other. Uh, doesn't mean that we don't have so many things in common. But there are some key differences in understanding God's work and how to apply especially prophetic passages between dispensationalists and covenant theologians. Dispensationalists tend to see the book of Revelation as future. Covenant theologians tend to see the book of Revelation as already in the past or being uh, progressively fulfilled throughout the whole church age. So it's going to have to do with uh, how you understand our relationship to the law and the, the promises there. And also, prophecy has a big impact on dispensationalism versus covenant understanding of the scriptures. Alright, let's talk also then about principle number 18, where we have to understand the biblical covenants. And I'm glad you put these together in the same chapter, because they're basically the same thing. Now, if you look back in the book again, I am critical of, of a certain number of aspects of dispensationalism. And... Now, on page 88 in my book, you've got this big chart on dispensationalism. And he's got a covenant that goes along with each uh, dispensation. Uh, and he's got the, the seven dispensations up here. Innocence, conscience, government, promise, law, grace, kingdom. I don't really hold the seven dispensations. Uh, I think that's kind of just something that people have systematized. And they like the number seven. And so they, they come up with this. But... Again, this is kind of imposing our view on Scripture rather than just letting Scripture speak for itself. There's no Bible verse that says there's seven dispensations. Let me tell you about the seven dispensations. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just anti-systematic, but uh, I, I think there's dangers here. And one of the dangers here is that then they create a covenant to go along with each one of the dispensations. So you've got the Edenic covenant. Now, nowhere in Genesis 2, 16 and 17 will you find the word covenant. It doesn't say covenant. And so this guy will say, well, the idea of covenant is there. Well, maybe. But let's just uh, use the word covenant to describe the words that what the Bible actually refers to as a covenant. Let's not make up covenants. So I was critical of the covenant theologians for making up covenants. I'm also critical of this dispensationalist for making up covenants. 
uh, to go along with the, now he didn't make them up, he's getting them from other dispensational theologians. And the Adamic covenant, there's no Adamic covenant in scripture. So don't just think, well, because I gave you this book, but I think everything in this book is right. I, I really like this book, I think it does great, but here's one place where I think he's a little too systematic in his dispensationalism and needs to just stick with scripture a little bit more. There is a Noahic covenant, you can actually read about that, and there is an Abrahamic covenant, there is a Mosaic covenant, there is a Palestinian covenant, and there is a Davidic covenant, and there is a new covenant. So we've got that part uh, all biblically correct. But you see how easy it is for us to kind of just want to make things fit uh, when, we're, when we're doing systematic theology. It's, well, I have a covenant to go along with these other dispensations that I've systematized, and so I need a covenant to go with these, and so I can read it into this text. And we just want to make things fit our system instead of just allowing the scriptures to speak for themselves. Be careful with that. Um, so principle 18, don't make things fit <laughs> into your system. Uh, understand the biblical covenants. And I think the key word there is biblical covenants, not the covenants we've made up to, to make our systematic theology uh, communicate better. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention here is, if you got your Bibles, open up to Leviticus 19, 18 and 19. Now, you should have already done this. When you're reading through your Bible interpretation book, let me remind you that you're supposed to have an open Bible with you while you're reading it. That you don't uh, just read the text, but you look up all the verses that he's talking about so that... You're not just taking his word for it. Oh, look, there's an Adamic covenant because my guy says so. Well, you look at the text. Is there really a, the word covenant in that verse? Um, here in Leviticus 19, he does a good job of pointing out that in verses 18 and 19, let's go ahead and read that. It says in verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. What well, does that mean? I can take vengeance and bear a grudge against the... Uh, People who are not my people? That's a good question. Uh, so if you're reading your verse and you're doing a, a Bible study on this, that'd be one of your questions. Does this imply that it is okay to take vengeance against a foreigner? But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, of course, this was the question that was asked to Jesus. Well, who is my neighbor? Uh, is it just other Israelites that are my neighbor? And then Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan to make it clear that it's even people that you don't think of as your own people, that you need to love your neighbor as yourself. So interesting to compare Jesus' interpretation of this. But then you go on to verse 19, and he again says, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Now, these would be commands that we wouldn't see as binding on Christians today. We would still say, well, Christians are supposed to love your neighbors yourself, but you wouldn't go over to your neighbor and say, hey, you know, you're, you're, wearing, a cloth, you're wearing clothing there with two different kinds of material. It's like 50% polyester, 50% cotton. Sinner! <laughs> um, we don't do that. So the, the question is, how do you know which parts of the Old Testament law you're supposed to be living under and which parts of the Old Testament law you're not supposed to be living under. And the way the book handles it is the way that most uh, preachers and Bible interpreters handle it. And I'm going to be critical. I'm going to push back on it a little bit. Uh, he said, basically, 
in principle 18, that we apply the moral aspects of the law, but not the civil and ceremonial. So he says that verses 19 would be like civil or ceremonial law, but that verse 18 would be moral law. However, my pushback is, isn't there something moral uh, in verses 19? And isn't there something civic about verse 18? I mean, can you really divide civics and morals so neatly? All law is based upon morality. Uh, you can't go across the street and steal because it's against the law. And we wouldn't have a civil society if you could steal from the stores, like Portland. You hear about how the stores are all closing in Portland because they don't prosecute uh, uh, theft. How can you have a store if your state doesn't prosecute theft? And they're all shutting down. Um, but it's a moral issue, but it's also a civic issue. And so I don't think this idea of separating the law into moral, civic, and ceremonial is really the best way to go about this. Now, some laws are more ceremonial and some laws are more ethical. But the, the point is, is that the law is a whole. And we're not picking and choosing and saying, well, this part of the law we're going to keep, but this part of the law we're not. Because we've categorized this as civic law and we've categorized this as moral law. No, that's not the, that's not the right way to do it. Philosophically, logically, I don't think it works. What you need to do instead is recognize that the law stands as a unit. And the law was not made with us. The law was made with Israel. Now, it's for us, but it's not to us. It was for us, it was, it was written to a specific people in a specific time, in a specific place, and their relationship, their covenant with God. And so, in one sense, none of the law uh, uh, applies to us. And in another sense, all of the law applies to us. So, what I mean by none of the law applies to us is, think about this. Where did our judicial system, our legal heritage come from in the United States? What's the, what's the background uh, for American law and justice? English law and justice, okay? It comes from England. Most of the early colonists were English. They brought over their ideas of, of law and is good. English law was actually really good. Uh, not that it's perfect. But our law and English law are very similar, are they not? For example, easy example. Uh, it's against the law to murder in America. It's against the law to murder in England. However, there are differences between English law and American law. Uh, in America, the law says you have to drive on the right side of the road. In England, the law says you have to drive on the left side of the road. Key difference. Now, just because the laws are similar doesn't mean they're the same. And just because the laws are different doesn't mean that they're entirely different. And so, in the Bible, we have the law of Moses given to Israel, and we have the law of Christ that then replaces the law of Moses. And the law of Christ has a lot of similarities to the law of Moses. They're both from the same lawgiver, but there are key differences. And so, just like the which side of the road you drive on is different between English law and American law. So there's going to be differences between the Old Testament law and the New Testament law, but they're all based upon the same principle. 
The principle is you have to drive on one side of the road and have everybody driving on one side of the road, otherwise you're going to have a lot of car accidents. That's the, that's the idea, that's the principle. So you take the principle from the Old Testament law, and that principle carries over. Because both law systems are from the same God whose character doesn't change. So you learn about justice, you learn about righteousness, you learn about God from the Old Testament law, but you don't have to apply it in a slavish manner to our time and place because you recognize the distinction, the differences between a New Testament believer and an Old Testament Israelite. For example, look at this uh, law there in verse 19. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Why? Now he doesn't say why, does he? He just says this, do this. But we have to ask why, because we have to principalize the text. We have to figure out what is the ethical and moral, what is the religious, the spiritual, the civic, what is the principle here? What was God designing to, this law to do for Israel? And for that, you need some sanctified imagination, and you need a good understanding of salvation history. You need to be able to understand and read your Bible. Who was Israel? What was God trying to do with the whole law? And how does this law fit in with what God was trying to do? Well, one of the things you find out when you read the Old Testament is that God was teaching the people of Israel to be separate and distinct, to not mix together with the nations around them. And so this law was putting into the DNA of their culture this idea that you keep separate things separate. You don't just mix everything together. Now, we live in a very multicultural age that loves to just mix everything together. It's like, you know, for music. We want to mix Japanese with hip-hop, and we want to mix traditional with new age, and, and just throw it all together, and you get this new sound. And that's, you know, what we consider to be very artistic. Uh, and God was teaching the people of Israel, well, I don't want you to be this kind of eclectic, mix-everything-together people. I want you to be separate and holy and distinct from the nations. And so the principle here is to keep separate things that should be kept separate. It's not that we have to slavishly follow this particular law. But we have to develop that mindset. That just mixing things together doesn't always make them better. But there are certain things that need to be separate and pure and holy. And this applies most of all to morality. You don't just mix everybody's morals together. But instead, we take the biblical morality and we say, well, this is how we're going to act. So, you principalize the text. Now, some texts are already quite principalized, like love your neighbor yourself is a general principle, so it doesn't take a lot of work to principalize that. And that's what fools people into thinking, well, well, that's the part of the law that we're still under, but this other part of the law is civic, it's ceremonial, we're not under that law. We're not under any of the law. Uh, you can't be prosecuted in England for murder if you kill somebody here in the United States. Because you're not in England, you're not an English citizen, the English law has no authority over you. Now, it's still wrong to murder, but you're under American law. You'll be uh, brought into the American courts. And so you are under the new covenant, and you'll be judged by the new covenant law of Christ. You won't be judged by the old covenant law of Moses because you're not an Israelite living before Christ. So in one sense, none of the law applies to you because it is done away with. That law system is no longer in effect because that covenant is no longer the covenant by which God is relating to the world. You got a new law... And therefore, that's the law that we're under. Uh, think of the Old Testament as like the law of England. Think of the New Testament as the, the law of 
the United States. And that'll help you understand how you're not under the Old Testament law. And yet, so many of the principles of the Old Testament law are still applicable to us today. And that's how we should understand and, and think about the biblical covenants. Each covenant had its own law. The Old Covenant had its law. The New Covenant has its law. They're very similar, but they're not the same thing. And we're not under the Old Covenant, even though we learn from it. Alright, I just wanted to help understand principles 17 and 18 because they are very tricky and there's a lot of confusion out there. I've thought long and hard and read a lot of books on these subjects, so hopefully that's helpful. Maybe I'm wrong and I'm just not thinking about it right, but that's why we talk about it. We do our best. Alright, so let's take a look then at the quiz. Now, we don't have time. I've already talked too long and we've got to do other things. So, I'm just going to trust that you have got the quiz answers right and that you know what's going on there. And we're going to do some review. 